Be Romans chapter 6, starting in verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we've died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let me pray. Lord, we need you to work powerfully in us as we look at your word. We need you to illumine our minds so that we understand it. Lord, we need you to soften our hearts so that we receive it with thanksgiving and with joy. Lord, as we examine your word, may it examine us. May we be thankful for what we learn in your word about you and the work that you have done in us. About the fact that not only have you in Christ resolved the penalty of our sin and paid for that, Lord, but you have broken the power of sin in our lives. And Lord, we long for the day when you will remove us from the presence of it. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, on Friday, Inga gave me a call and uh, kind of gave me a well, ask me a question, really. I don't know if you guys know this, and I, I, don't, I don't really want to talk about homosexuality all the time, but because I used the example of Ray Boltz last week, who was the Christian musician who's now gone to homosexuality, um, on, and identified himself by his sin, saying of himself, I am a homosexual. There's no way for me to get away from that. That's what I am, identifying himself that way. Um, Inga actually called me Friday and said, hey, um, have you heard about this Episcopal church um, bishop who sent out, they sent out a mailer, by the way, to all kinds of households saying that we should, we should vote um, no on Proposition 8. And the reason is, is because we should love our neighbors. And to discriminate against them is to, is to not love them. And she asked me what I thought about that. Um, and we talked about the concept of love. And I apply that same question to the issue with Ray Bolts. If Ray Bolts were here today in front of me, this great Christian musician from the 80s who's now crossed over into the homosexual lifestyle, if he were here in front of me today, what would I say to Ray Bolts? Would I love him? Absolutely. But what would I say to him? What the Episcopal, Episcopal Church is saying to us is that if we love him, we wouldn't tell him the truth. 
If we loved him, we'd keep it to ourselves. But because, I want you to hear this, because I love him. Not, I love him, but I'm going to tell him the truth. Because I love him, I would tell him, you realize that you're putting yourself in bondage to your sin. You realize that you're identifying yourself by your sin and not as someone who's in Christ. You realize if you believe in Jesus, he changes you and you're no longer identified by that anymore. That's what I talked to him about. Basically, what I would talk to Ray Boltz about, as I would with any person who's identifying themselves by their sin, whether it be alcoholism, I'm an alcoholic. Or whether it be homosexuality, I'm a homosexual. Or whether it be some kind of sexual addiction, I'm a sex addict. Whatever it is that's the sin they're identifying themselves by, I would talk to them about the fact that apart from Christ, they're right. They can rightly identify themselves by their sin. But in Christ, if they believe, they are absolutely wrong. Because they are no longer identified as those who are in Adam, as fallen, sinful, condemned, subject to death eternally. They are now those who are in Christ. Righteous. They have a new life. Subject to glorification. Eternal reward. Do you understand the distinction that's made here? I think what happens for a lot of Christian people. And I think for the people who ask the first question that Paul is expecting to be asked in Romans 6. What happens is the same thing. And here's what it is. When I come to Jesus for forgiveness, I look to the cross in faith and I say, Lord, forgive me. And what he does is he forgives me. And Jesus paid for my sin and the penalty is removed and I'm forgiven and now I'm going to heaven. But I was dead in sin and I was identified by my sin and I was stuck in it and I couldn't get free from it and I was hopeless and he just left me there. All that happened was I was forgiven. And I see this ridiculous bumper sticker. And if you have it, I'm sorry, go peel it off today. And and please don't think I'm attacking you. But it says, Christians aren't perfect, just forgiven. It's not true. That bumper sticker is a lie. It's right that Christians aren't perfect. But it's wrong that they're just forgiven. What is that, some kind of excuse for me to drive poorly? Don't mind the fish on my car. I'm not perfect, just forgiven. So when I cut you off and give you the sign of peace, right? When I do that, don't worry. I'm forgiven. You're not. But I am. The difference between the two of us, I have forgiveness. That isn't the gospel not even close the gospel is that i was dead in my trespasses and sins 
dead. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, made us alive together with Christ. That's the gospel. He not only forgave me for my sin, he not only declared me righteous in him, he actually made me a new creation. He brought me out of death and into life, and he filled me with his Holy Spirit and dwelt me, and I am a new person. And my life looks radically different as a result. That doesn't mean I don't still struggle, but it's different. I cannot identify myself as both and. This is what a lot of Christians do. They say, I'm both that old person and this new person. Not true. The old person is dead. That is not you anymore. You are now in Christ. That's you. That's you. That person's dead. But that person still keeps rearing their ugly head. And for some of you, that head is uglier than others. And I'm not talking about your physical appearance. But that person keeps rearing its ugly head. Yep. Why? Because while he saved you from the penalty of sin and he saved you from the power of sin, he has not yet removed you from the presence of sin. And so sin is still all around you. Sin has been ingrained into your mind and your heart and your members. And you battle with it. But that sin that's all around you, that attacks you, that battles with you, and that you battle with is not you. Do you hear that? That is not you. Stop trying to resurrect that old dead man. Listen to what Paul says. He's answering this question. I want you to hear the flow of thought in this passage. And I want you to hear five implications from it. I want you to hear what he's saying. I want you to hear five implications from it. Verse, look back at chapter 5, verse 20. Because this is where this question comes from that he asked in chapter 6, verse 1. And I'm just going to break down this passage through verse 10 for you real quickly. Verse 20. Now the law came in to increase the trespass. So the law came. Why did the law come? To increase your trespass. How? One, the law showed you that you're a sinner. Hear that? The law showed you that you're a sinner, which increases the trespass because now you sin with knowledge. That's what we call a conscience. The word conscience, con with, science means knowledge. A conscience is with knowledge. Now you sin with knowledge because the law came in and made you aware that you're sinning with knowledge. That increases your sin, does it not? As opposed to sinning in ignorance. The law also increased your sin in a second way. What is it? That because of sin within you, when the law came and God said, do not, do not, do not, your flesh was incited to more. You know what I'm talking about, right? It's like when your parents say, don't touch that. That is what you want to touch. Your parents have given you a law. There's nothing wrong with the law. What's wrong is you. And you say, ooh, that must be good. I'm going to do that. It couldn't possibly be that your parents or your God wants the best for you. He must be withholding something grand. Right? And so sin incites, our, the law incites even more sin. So look what it says. The law came in to increase the trespass. But where sin increased, grace abounded all 
the more. What's the context here? In five, chapter 5, verse 12 to 21, the context is the difference between being in Adam and being in Christ. And what he says is, in Christ, while your sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Verse 21, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So Paul makes a statement. You're forgiven. You're forgiven for your sin. You're declared righteous in Christ. Even though when the law came, and especially because when the law came, you became a greater sinner. When you were in Christ, you were forgiven and grace abounded that much more. And then someone says, but we don't do anything. No, you don't do anything. So why am I forgiven? Why am I counted righteous? Why am I now holy in God's sight? Because of Jesus. I don't do anything? Nope. Can I lose it? Nope. Did I gain it in the first place? No. Well, that's too stinking easy. That, that can't be possibly right. I can't possibly believe in a God who's that merciful and gracious. He must be having a law that I should keep so I can get his approval somehow. Nope. How do I get blessed in Christ? That's it. Yep. Can't be true. My objection to that, Paul, is that if that's true, then I should just send it up. So grace can abound more. That's what Paul says. Look at verse 1 of chapter 6. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? That's the objection Paul expects. That's too easy, Paul. That's too much grace. You're not requiring me to do anything. Paul's saying, yeah. I guess we should expect that we can just sin more. Grace may abound. And then look at his answer. By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? And here's where Paul starts to explain what he means here. You have to understand, Christians, while the grace of God is extravagant and free, when it comes upon you, for it to incite in you the idea that you can continue in sin is for you to completely miss what happened. And guess what? What happened will not incite you to sin more. Just the opposite. Because when the grace of God pours out in your life, you are different. You are changed. You died to sin. You're not asking the question, how do I get a free pass to sin more? It's not what you're asking. You've completely changed. And so Paul says this, how can we who died to sin still live in it? How can we continue to habituate it in our lives? Paul is not saying that we're never going to sin again. What he's saying is, why would you even ask the question if you can habituate sin in your life and be defined by it? If you understand grace and that it reigns, then you're different. You wouldn't even ask that. And so he goes on to explain it in broad terms. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? You were literally plunged. Paul is explaining what it means to die with Christ. You were literally plunged into his death. Immersed into it. Not so much, not, not only so much were you immersed and plunged in it, even further, look at verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who've been baptized in Christ Jesus were baptized to death? Verse 4, we were buried therefore with him by baptism. You're dead and buried. You've been plunged into his death. 
and you've been buried with him. You've been buried. You're dead. You won't even ask that question. If you're a believer. Now, if you're not, you're going to ask that question, aren't you? Seems too easy. I appeal back to the law. There has to be something I can do to get God's blessing, get him to approve of me. There's got to be something I can do to lose this grace. It's too much. That's the heart of an unbeliever. Not the heart and mind of someone who understands the gospel of God's grace. And he goes on and says this. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism as death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. You're dead and you've been resurrected to new life with Christ. You died with him on Calvary and you've been resurrected. Look what he says in verse 5. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Do you hear the contrast there? We've been united with him in a death like his. We died with him. Dead, buried. That's it. We shall also certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We not only will die negative, but we will have a new life. And he goes on, explains that death in verse 6. Look, first he's going to explain the first part, being united with him in a death like his. Then he's going to explain the second part, being resurrected. Look at verse 6. We know that our old self was crucified with him. You hear that? Your old self, your old man was crucified with him. Dead. On the cross, when Jesus died, so did you. That's when it was accomplished. When it was applied to you was when you believed. You hear that? He goes on. We were crucified, was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. Why, why we crucified him? What was the purpose or the result of that? Here's the purpose of our crucifixion with Christ. We're dead in our sin so that the body of sin, this body, these members that are so in love with this world, this mind, this heart that's so attracted to the all that this world has to offer, that it'll be brought to no effect. In other words, it doesn't have power over me anymore. You hear that? It can't control me anymore. It's, I'm dead to it. Now look what he goes on and says. My brought to nothing so that we would, so you can hear the clarification further on this, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. It's not your master anymore. Sin reigned in Adam. Grace reigns in Christ. It's Paul's point. Grace is more than just forgiveness. Grace is radical life change. A new creation. He goes on and says this. Verse 7. For one who has died has been set free from sin. And now he's explained your death. Now he's going to explain your resurrection, your new life. Look what he says in verse 8. Now if we've died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. Future tense. Paul is saying we will certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We believe we will also live with him. Why is he looking forward to the end? Why not now, Paul? You're not helping me right now by talking about the end. Yes, he is. Because what is guaranteed in the future... The power of Christ's resurrection of the future is applied to us 
now spiritually. What will happen to you physically has happened to you spiritually when you believed. If you don't believe that, all you have to do is look at verse 4 because Paul's using it both ways here. That we too might walk in newness of life right now. Look at verse 11. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus right now. That future resurrection of your body is promised to you. And it has present results in your life. You're a new creation spiritually. And he goes on, explains this more. Look at verse 9. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. Notice Paul's talking about Jesus here, not you, not me. Why? How is that helpful to me? Why is it helpful to me? Chad, he's not even talking about my experience. He's talking about an objective reality about Jesus, not my experience. How is that helpful to me? Look at what he says. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. Great, Paul. How is that helpful to me? Because you're in him. You're united with him. That's how it's helpful to you. Because what's true of Jesus is true of you. By the grace of God. He goes on, he explains this. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. The life he lives, he lives to God. Jesus was raised from the dead. He'll never die again. Death has no dominion over him. Paul's saying that Jesus' resurrection confirms that Jesus will never die again. Hear that? The resurrection of Jesus confirms he'll never die again. Because death has no power over him. Why? Because the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. I want you to hold this. When Jesus died on the cross, he died to sin once for all time. You hear that? Once for all time. He doesn't have to die again because his death fully satisfied the wrath of God. God's holiness was vindicated in the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. God's holiness was offended by our sin and his justice is the vindication of his holiness. And his justice required punishment for our violation of his holiness. And when Jesus went to the cross, he vindicated God's holiness. God's justice was poured out on him. You hear that? One time. And when he did it, he paid it all. He died for it once. And that cross, that day on Calvary was sufficient There is no other need for an offering for sin. No need for another blood sacrifice. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. What Sinclair Ferguson says about the cross and what blows me away about the cross is that the Lord of glory, Jesus, the Son of the Father, who eternally existed with him, And an eternal love relationship with the Father came here and lived under the law that he gave 
as subject to it in our place. And he went to a cross and he paid the penalty due to us in our place. And while he was on that cross, he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And at that moment, it is as if we look upon that cross and can say, how can it be? It's almost as if we can say, could it be that the father loves me more than his son? Sure appears that way. How could that possibly be? That he would go through that for such a wretch as I. How could it be? That's what God did. That's grace to cheapen that and to think that that accomplishes just a little bit in your life. It's almost blasphemy to cheapen that and think that it's something you can appear in front of and say, you know, that's good. That's good what Jesus did. But I'm not sure if it's enough. I'm not sure if the father pouring out his wrath on his son in my place is enough. I'm not sure. Maybe we still need purgatory. I'm not sure if it was sufficient. I'm not sure if it's enough. Maybe I still need to keep the law. So I can get his approval. I'm not sure if it's enough. Maybe I can do something in the future to undo the cross. Certainly I can lose it. I may not have sinned sufficiently enough to make the cross of no effect yet, but I'll find a way. cheapens grace doesn't it cheapens the whole event to think that i could look at the church the bride of christ for whom he gave his life with anything but love and a desire to see god at work and a rejoicing of god when he's at work is to cheapen the cross to think i can look at my spouse and say you know what I care about grace, but not for that person. Because they've crossed the line too many times. I'm done with it. Is to cheapen the cross. It's to say of Jesus, it wasn't enough. It wasn't enough. Father, I know you gave the son you loved, but it wasn't enough. It's wrong. Listen to what happened on the cross. At the resurrection, the father declared the penalty that my law requires for sin has been met. Jesus has met all of it in the cross. My holiness has been justly vindicated. My son has accomplished that for which I sent him. He will never die again. I resurrect him as a display of my glorious power and of my approval of the sacrifice he made. I resurrect him and thus break the power of sin, which is the law and its requirement of death. And now the life Jesus lives, he lives to God. Don't miss Paul's argument here, guys. This is revolutionary for Christian living. 
When we believe the gospel, we're not only forgived, we're not only declared righteous. At that time, we died and rose to new life in Christ. That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, if any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. Behold, the old is gone, the new has come. The gospel doesn't say to you, listen, this is what I think people think the gospel says to them. The gospel doesn't say to you, you're exactly the same person, dead in your sin, but now you're forgiven and declared righteous. However, your life is still your own. No real changes happen. You get this great forgiveness, but no real change happens. You're still under the power of sin. But don't worry, because no matter how much you sin, grace abounds all the more anyways. It's not what the gospel says to you. The gospel says to you, you've been forgiven. You've been declared righteous. Your old self died. You've been raised to new life. The penalty of sin has been paid. The power of sin has been broken. You're no longer slaves to sin, but you're alive to God in Christ Jesus. Your life is not your own. It's God's. You're not on your own to fight sin. You've been, been indwelt by the promised Holy Spirit. You're a child of God. You're a saint you will be resurrected and rewarded with him. And Paul says in verse 11, what? Reckon it to be true. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Reckon it to be true of you. I I don't know about you guys, but I just want to bask in the truth of that. I just want to rejoice in it. It makes me want to cry out. Come thou fount of every blessing. Tune my heart to sing thy grace. It makes me want to yell out how deep the Father's love for us. How vast beyond all measure that he would give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. So now that we understand that in Christ we have new life, one that does not encourage sin but frees us from slavery to it, so that we might ourselves live for God, now that we get that, what are the implications of new life? What are the implications of that? Five implications quickly. One, first implication, we have a new perspective of our identity. Hear that? A new perspective of our identity. We're a new man in Christ. If you haven't gotten that implication yet, you haven't been paying attention. We're a new man in Christ. Our new identity is not defined by the flesh or the devil or the world. Our new identity is defined by union with Christ through his spirit. This is why John or Jesus can say this amazing thing in John 15. Something my son asked me about the other day that, that still blows me away. Um, you know, when I stop and think about it and I want to take him out to a farm and, and, you know, to a vineyard actually and show him, he asked me, Dad, what does it mean that Jesus is the vine and we're the branches? What does that mean? I'm trying to explain him because Jesus says this amazing thing. John 15, verse 1. I am the true vine. You are the branches. Did you guys hear the power of that? Probably if you don't farm, you probably don't. And even if you do farm, you may have thought, not thought of it. Branches are in union with the vine, aren't they? They're united to it, right? Where does a branch get its life from? The vine. 
doesn't it? It doesn't self-generate life. It gets it from the vine. What if a branch is cut off? Will it live? No. Where does the branch grow from? The vine. What nourishes the branch? The vine. How is the branch identified? On its own? No, as part of the vine, isn't it? It's in union with Christ that we live. That's how we're identified. We're branches in the vine of Christ. What does it mean to be in Christ, though? I think people don't have to think about this. Let me give you an analogy that that makes sense to me. And you might think I'm a complete weirdo, but I'm going to give it to you anyways. I have a son and a daughter whom I love deeply. And and if you're a parent, you might understand this. Sometimes Sometimes I look at my kids and go, whose kids are these? But not usually. Sometimes at that moment, and you know if you're a parent, I look at my kid and I love my child so much that I just want to be inside of them. Do do you know what I'm saying? Does that make any sense to anybody or just me? I just want to like jump into them, right? And just live in there. I want to know them so well. That sounds weird. I just kind of want to squeeze my head into them somehow. I I just feel this compulsion. I don't know. I don't. But the point is, I want to be in union with my child in some way that I'm not. You guys understand what I mean by that? The Bible gives us a different metaphor. It gives us the metaphor of of a husband and a wife. And it talks about sexual union that happens. That when you love your wife, you come together with her and you know her. And you're in her. And there's a union that occurs. And it compares that to the union of Christ with his church. That we're united to Christ in a similar sort of way. The Father and the Son are in one another that way. And us, we're just a shadow of that. But when this, it, these examples I'm giving you, marriage and wanting to get in my child, that's just an example, a shadow example of that. But what happens at salvation is the Holy Spirit indwells you and Christ is in you. Now, how much you hear this? He's in you in the same way the Father and the Son are in one another. Stop and contemplate that for a minute. That doesn't drive you to sin, does it? You're a new man in Christ. Second, second implication. You have a new perspective about your future. You have a new perspective about your future. Your guaranteed resurrection, Romans 6, 5, if we've been united with him in death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. 1 Corinthians 15, I can go on and on with passages. You have a new perspective about your future. We're in Christ, and as those in him, we'll be resurrected physically, and we will rejoice with him eternally. And if you've been in a small group study, and if you're not in a small group study, I encourage you to get in it. If you've been in it, you're learning that what we view as our final destination changes the way we live now, doesn't it? What you view as your final destination changes the way you live now. If the purpose of life is to be with Christ for eternity and not to exalt me and not to be successful and not to reach some worldly goal, then every bit of opposition and suffering that comes 
will be rejoiced in rather than despised because it's an opportunity for God to make me more like his son and I can share in his glory. What normally happens is because our perspective is that our life is about us and our happiness and our success and what we want to accomplish that every time someone or something comes and steps on that, we're frustrated and angry and our life blows apart because we don't get that that's not our destination. Our final destination is with Christ. When we have that perspective, it changes the way we see life. Third, we have a new perspective of this world. In Christ, we have a new perspective of this world. 1 John chapter 2. I want to read this really quickly to you because I don't think a lot of believers know this. Verse 15 through 17, you don't have to turn there if you don't want to, but I'm going to read it. Do not love the world. Do not love the world or the things in the world. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride in possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Do you hear that? Do not love the world or the things in the world. That is what the life of a believer looks like. Someone who does not love the world or the things in the world. That's the new perspective you have as a believer. But we're absolutely infatuated with the world, even in the Christian church in America. Our lives do not look demonstrably different than that of unbelievers. Do they? Maybe that's because we're one of them. Our lives do not look demonstrably different. We watch the same movies. We read the same books. We listen to the same music. We hang out with the same people. We love the same things. We pursue business the same way they do. We cheat and lie and steal. We divorce our wives at the same rate, if not greater. And they say of us, hypocrites, why join you? You're no different than me. Yet you drive around with your self-righteous bumper sticker saying, you're not perfect, just forgiven. Right? Well, I don't want any part of it. You put your little fish on the back of your car and on your little business ad, and then you cut people off in traffic and you rip people off as a businessman. What difference does all that garbage you're talking about make? You look just like me. It's possible that if that's you, you're not a believer, that you have not been changed. It's also possible that you're a believer who is battling with your flesh and is losing because you're giving up. You're just giving up. I'm just going to love the world and the things in the world. 
I'm going to love wealth. I'm going to love comfort. I'm going to love success. I'm going to love inappropriate, impure humor. I mean, shoot, Ephesians 5. This convicts me all the time. Clearly says, don't even let there be a hint of sexual immorality among you. No coarse jesting. But we think, I can handle a little bit of it. Right? I can take it in, in small measures. I'm mature enough. I can handle some of it. Now, of course, I won't have it around my children. They can't handle it. But I can. And we think it doesn't change us, and we're wrong. Look, you wouldn't, if I pooped in a big batch of brownies, you wouldn't eat, eat it just because it was just a little bit of poop in a whole big batch, would you? You wouldn't do it. You're like, well, there's a lot of brownie left, just a little bit of poop. You'd be like, you know what? You defiled all those brownies, wouldn't you? Wouldn't you? Because you know it's the case. And that's how we treat the world. We're out there going, you know what? I can watch that. It's just a little bit of sin. I can participate in that. It's just a little bit of sin. It's not going to hurt me. It isn't you anymore. Your life doesn't belong to you. You're alive to God in Christ Jesus. Throw that junk out. I need to throw it out. Fourth, a new perspective of our role in this world. A new perspective of our role in this world. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says this. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is past. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Hear that? Our role in this world is no longer one in which we go along through life like everybody else, content with just living the average American life. Our role in this world is now one in which we are ambassadors of Christ. You don't even, rec- you don't even you're not even supposed to represent yourself at all anymore. You're just supposed to represent Jesus now. He's what matters. Dietrich Bonhoeffer made the comment in his book, Life Together, that that we don't really have true fellowship until we present Jesus to one another. Because we're always in the way. I want you to like me. Generally, I don't care how you think about Jesus. Is that our attitude? But we're representatives of him. When you're an ambassador, you your sole job for the king, the nation that sends you out, is to represent them. Not yourself. And we're ambassadors for Christ. Bringing the message of reconciliation. You hear that? Fifth. We have a new perspective of others. Not only this world. Not only of our role in this world. Not only of our future. Not only of ourselves. But of others. We regard no one according to the flesh. We see men as either in Christ or in Adam. With regard to unbelievers, we don't participate in racism or classism or sexism and think that some aren't worthy of salvation. Everyone is equally unworthy of salvation. 
With regard to believers, we no longer see them according to their sinfulness, but we see them in Christ. We have a divine perspective about them, as Paul does of Corinth. When he says to this wretched church, where there's all kinds of weird behavior happening. I, I didn't want to go into it all, but if I just listed all the behavior in Corinth, you'd be like, wow, that's a horrible church. We've got to close the thing down. They had sons having relationships with their moms or mother-in-laws that were not appropriate. People suing each other. All kinds of craziness happening. And Paul says to this church, I am confident that God will present you to himself holy and blameless. What? Boy, that's a divine perspective of people in Christ, isn't it? church of philippi they've got sin in their lives what does paul say i'm confident that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion he sees them in christ and he knows the power of god he doesn't he's not confident about them he's confident about god in them gives him a new perspective of people we count the evidences of grace before we look for the areas of improvement We trust God to complete his work and present them to himself holy and blameless. So when your spouse or that person at work who's a new Christian or whoever it is starts to give you evidences of their old life, you're not supposed to dwell on that and write them off. You're supposed to trust the Lord that he can work in them to radically change them and you're supposed to look for evidences of that. You guys hear the difference there? Why? Because you're confident in your spouse or that person at work that you don't like? No, because you're confident in God. You guys hear that? Because you're confident in God. Because you're confident about the power of grace. That's what we're talking about. That's what we're singing about. So I'm going to ask the band to come up here, and we're going to sing, and we're going to take communion. And um, I'm going to ask four guys to come forward who've been trained to do communion. Um, if some of them can, Mitch, why don't you come forward and Bo and um, Randy and Dan Sestone, if you could come up, that I'd appreciate that. We're going to pass out communion. And you know what we're going to do together? We're going to rejoice in the grace of God together. If you're not a believer, communion is not for you. It's not for you. But this is a great time for you to turn to Christ in faith and trust him. If you are a believer, communion's for you. And together, we're going to rejoice in grace. And I'm going to ask you to sing to him as the God who saved you and who's changed you. I'm going to ask you to sing to him. Participate in communion with us. Participate in offering for thanksgiving with us. Trust in Christ with us. Rejoice in him with us. If you're not a believer, come talk to me after the service. We talked to you about a walk with Christ. If you are a believer and your life is not where it needs to be, grab a hold of your small group leader or somebody around here you know is walking with Jesus or me and talk to us about how you get back on track, rejoicing in the grace of God. Let me pray. Lord, we thank you for your word and its truth. We thank you for the grace that you've shown to us and the change that it's made in us. And we pray that we'd rejoice in it today, together during communion, that we would see it at the table as we receive communion, that we would see your grace 
the broken body of your son, through the shed blood of your son, that we would rejoice in it. And Lord, for those who aren't believers here, we pray that your spirit would work in them and they would come to faith and trust you. In Jesus' name, amen.